From the Clock Tower of Mountain Air, this is the C.S. Lewis Book Club. I'm Dan. And I'm Alex. Welcome to our book club, and thank you for joining us in Season 3 as we continue the journey of Christian conversion. In this episode, we are covering The Great Divorce, chapters 11 through 14. And, spoiler alert, if you haven't read along with us to this point, what are you doing in our book club? Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Please feel free to pause, go read, and come and join us. All are welcome. All are welcome. That was a joke. (laughs) Alex, housekeeping for this morning. Do you have anything? Well, our next episode will be a wrap-up of The Great Divorce, but I want to get everybody kind of pumped, a little excited for the book that we're covering next, which is Till We Have Faces. So since the wrap-up episode doesn't have any reading assignment, I feel like a giving, home, <laughs> giving homework here, <laughs> you can get started on Till We Have Faces. And uh, yeah, I would... Maybe if we don't give you enough time, if that's the feeling being part of our book club that we're going a little too fast, maybe just take this time to kind of already um, jump into it to give yourself a little bit more time. I saw some study the other day that said that if you approach a scary situation and you just say the words, I'm excited, (laughs) that you tackle tackle it better. So I'm a little scared of Toya Faces based on some of the information I've gleaned from you. But I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) Good. The neurological experience, the chemicals in your brain for excitement and fear are the same. The difference is an interpretation. People jump off of cliffs into water not because they're not afraid, but because they're experiencing the sensation that would be fear with a different interpretation. But because they also know they're safe, it's Mm. exhilaration. Okay. So... In order to work for the Red Bull team, that has to be broken in your brain, just permanently exhilaration. Yes. <laughs> no fear. Well, and, and let's take with us some <laughs> lessons that we've learned from the books we've already covered. Bravery is not the absence of fear. Or I should say courage is not the absence of fear. It's not feeling brave. It's feeling scared and doing the hard thing anyway. That's what courage is. So if we didn't feel any trepidation going into this book, maybe we're not taking it seriously enough. I read Till We Have Faces several times before I really appreciated it. And by really appreciate, I mean it was a life-changing book. Hmm. So it didn't change my life. It sort of changed my life, and it really changed my life. That was kind of the succession of my experience with the book. Now, I don't, I don't want to say everybody has to have that experience, but in a very real way, that book is the culmination of all of Lewis's philosophy. Whew. So, I mean, we, we've been going through. The reason we, ha- we picked Till We Have Faces for the end of this season is exactly for that reason. We've already gone through the Pilgrim's Regress, which was taking us through this journey of Lewis's philosophy. And now we're seeing it in The Great Divorce in a more metaphor, well, experiential type philosophical experience. Mm -hmm. Even the screw tape letters that we started the season off with was kind of the negative image of all of the experience of the philosophy. So this has just been a philosophical season. And Till We Have Faces obviously fits, but it's also a very enjoyable book. Hmm. How long is Till We Have Faces? Is this like that hideous strength long? Is this great divorce long somewhere in the middle? No, it's uh, it's less than that hideous strength. It should, okay. It's not going to be an overwhelming read as far as length. Though It'll be more difficult as far as trying to apply it will seem more like a story and you might be like where how does this work it just seems kind of it 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 doesn't really seem like it fits with the rest of his writing Hmm. and um and this is because he's he's going a, a step deeper into the obscurantism i don't know if that's a word the uh obscurity okay and um through mythology and that's what he loved he loved mythology and so this it's a retelling of a greek myth the myth of cupid and psyche 
Well, one of our uh, one of our book club members messaged me this week and said, "Now that I've listened to the episodes on the Pilgrim's Regress, I want to go back and read the book because the commentary was helpful." So, if you get into it and you feel a little lost, maybe you could listen first and then go back and disregard all of the spoiler alerts we always do. <laughs> so whatever you want to do, whatever works for you. Uh, but we're excited to jump in. Um, Alex, do you want to give us the summary this morning? Sure. Lewis and MacDonald observe a mother demanding to have her son with her in hell. They then witness an oily ghost's victory over a lustful addiction by the purifying fire of a sun-bright angel. And finally, Lewis sees the conflict of weaponizing pity against love in the interaction between a saintly woman and a ghost who was her earthly husband. Lewis is troubled by the conflict, and MacDonald helps him understand through logic and the analogy of the seeming contradiction of free will and time. Hell is revealed to be a whole of near nothingness, confined by the boundary of the reality of heaven. Excellent. Themes. I have the theme of power. Tell me more. Well, as you I, go through... I'm going to say that more powerfully. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I don't know if you should say it more powerfully because I'm seeing it almost as a negative. Well, it's, it's the idea of power and throughout the book, you can look at all of these angelic... Well, okay. The idea of angel, I think, needs to be brought up because in the hierarchy of heaven from the perspective that Lewis uses it. There's difference between spirits and angels. You can almost see it as like the spirits are people who lived through mortality and then the angels are kind of like these Eldila. They're they're almost like servants, like lesser gods even. And uh, we'll see that in, there's a couple of characters in The Great Divorce that are specifically referred to as angels. And I think that's important, especially, we'll look back at it and see if it means anything and maybe speculate a little bit. That was an aside to the theme of power, but we're watching these ghosts try to hold on to this illusion of power that they have. And the spirits that come and try to convince them to stay in heaven or to at least climb the mountain to heaven because they're only in the foothills, are really just trying to ha- encourage them to yield. Yield to their own weakness, their own lack of power. Step on the grass that itself is too powerful for them. Just die. Yeah, <laughs> just die <laughs> just already. Just die. You're already <laughs> dead. Just die. And so that's what, when you have this understanding of free will, which we get hit really hard with, especially at the end of chapter 13, And free will being this really something that's not much more than the willingness to be a servant, to to serve in heaven rather than reign in hell. It's not that we're just naturally subordinate and weak. Well, that's true. But that we need to willingly understand and accept that role so that we can be purified. If we depend on our own power to purify us, we might be a really powerful ghost down in the crack of hell. <laughs> down in the Like that's the best we can do. Yeah. Right? And so it's this, would you rather have this perception of power, which you can only have by subordinating other people's freedom, Use, weaponizing pity and putting other people's freedom on the altar of your own ego. That's all you can do with your power. Pretend you're an ubermensch. Or yield to a real power, something greater than yourself. And in my mind, what I'm seeing is this ceiling of understanding, of mortal, the mortal lens, the looking through, down the wrong end of a telescope And the bigger world being looking through the real end of the telescope. And we're not able to see the whole thing. Can we accept that we can't see the whole thing and yield to something beyond the vision of our minds? Realize that we're nothing. And that really is the conflict that all of us are experiencing. In a way, that's microcosmically the conflict of our entire lives. And even saying our entire lives is looking through the small end of the telescope. There's several things you're hitting on here that remind me of 
the song that's sung when the lizards crush and they take off up into the mountains. And so I'm not going to get, I'm not going to jump the gun, but when we get there, remind me, because this is good. <laughs> so my, my, uh, Nietzschean saturated mind couldn't help but looking at this except through the lens of power. What was the theme that you saw? So I, I didn't write down a theme today, but you have two and one of them's free will, which, uh, which I think that has, Lewis sets up the end of the book. I mean, you finish with this kind of going back and forth, the idea of free will and how much can we really understand it as mortals in time? This for for me has been huge philosophically. I remember actually reading through this and almost forgetting chapter 13 by the time I got to chapter 14 and feeling almost angry. Like, wait, he's setting up this metaphor of these people playing chess and they don't really have free will because we're, and I'm forgetting that you can't look at it except through the lens of time, trying to see behind like the mystics do. There's a, there's that line that McDonald says it, the only way to try to see the end of, of reality after all choices are made means those choices don't exist anymore. The one example that I felt like was the closest or more understandable thing to grasp is when he talks about the condescension of God, when he talks about Christ being the only one who could become small enough to fit in hell to actually preach to those spirits that are there. And how that, and he asks, well, that was done a long time ago. He goes, no, here, time doesn't, doesn't apply. And that's always happening. The condescension of God is always happening. And how grateful I am that it doesn't apply to time and that it can apply to me today and tomorrow and yesterday. So that that is the closest I can come to understanding something that's totally eternal that applies to me in the future as well as as right now. Right. And it's difficult to talk about. And I think that's my my theme, that theme that you brought up of free will. I the real the, theme. <laughs> yeah. I think the point of, of talking about it is logically it's contradictory. And you'll have whole philosophies that are based around, which are, is a funny kind of philosophy to have, but based around this idea that there is no such thing as free will, in which case, what are you doing trying to, con to convince other people unless you just think, you know, like Frost, you can't help but push the key out of the, the keyhole um, and burn yourself alive. But <laughs> remember that scene? That was yeah. kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, we're not going to do it justice be because we can't this conflict of understanding free will and also trying to take your mind out of time, which you cannot do. George MacDonald makes through I mean, Lewis through George MacDonald makes the best argument I've ever heard in the end of this book for understanding that contradiction or seeming contradiction. Cause it's not a contradiction in heaven. It's just a contradiction in our time bound minds. And so anyway, we'll try to talk about it. We'll feel, unsatisfied talking about it because we won't break through the transcendental realities in this hour we're talking. But to realize that this is a, a lot of our lives and well, at least a huge part of my whole world paradigm is trying to understand this conflict, giving up and relying on the goodness of God that I don't have to have it understood, just take responsibility for my own life. That's yeah. the conclusion for me. I a hundred percent. And I and I think that the value of these conversations is that it it helps me give up a little bit more or or yield a little bit more than than when these things aren't actively on my mind. And so if if we can get a little bit more yielding out of us uh, human beings, then there's a difference between putting blinders on and realizing that you're blind. And I don't want to put blinders on, but we're going to come to the, to the edge of our vision and we're not going to be able to see beyond it. Yeah. And so hopefully that's what we set up in our conversation, reviewing these beautiful chapters. Okay. Break time. And we'll be right back. Welcome back. Jumping into chapter 11, we have Pam. I was able to, uh, I wasn't able to always pull out the names of the spirits. We're Pam, Pam and Michael. Pam and Michael. 
and mother love. And you have this ghost who her fixation, her obsession is her, what she would call her love for her son, Michael. And as we go through this interaction, you quickly can see that love is not what, like real love is not what's driving this obsession. What did you learn from? You have to keep in mind, Jesus is a counsel. By their fruits, you shall know them. Hmm. And if you try to justify your premises without looking at the conclusion of what those premises come to. Um, Like McDonald says, it's likely that she right now is trying to convince them to give, to let Michael or for her to bring Michael down to hell with her. And that's not love, obviously. What about the idea that the goal of the angel or of the spirit was to help her want something other than Michael. Like this was this was a one directional just her wanting somebody. And I guess where where do we fall in that trap? Where do you fall in that trap? I fall into that trap whenever I feel like my power over something is what my identity or my ego, my virtue really is uh defined by she wants Michael, but she, she wants Michael in a way of possessing him. She doesn't want the best for him. She doesn't want him to be happy without her. She wants to own him. She wants to, him to need her. And if he doesn't need her, she sees that or she's, she's dumbing that down to her definition of love. And that's not what love is. She's destroying language so that it will fit her paradigm of power. And the parental instinct is taking a lot of natural inclinations that are set up to be very powerful virtues, but on their own are just domineering tyranny. And what is the line that even tigresses share the love that, you know, mother love. Yeah. And, um, and this was hard for Lewis. He says to McPhee, so I'm supposed to go back to earth and tell people that mother love, this holiest and most sacred of things that we put on a pedestal, actually could be a, have a damning influence on somebody's life. And McPhee tells him, no, no, you can't go say that because you're not, I think he just isn't progressed enough. He hasn't learned enough. I think, yeah, he has, he's, his heart hasn't been broken yeah. in that way. Yeah. And there's certain merits in order to be able to, um, preach certain virtues. You need to have gone through that process of your heart being broken, I guess, uh, which I understand. We don't like to hear from people who don't know what they're talking about. Like I, I don't really understand a mother's love. I know a father's love, but from what I've observed is I think they're a little different. There's, there's definitely (laughs) rationale, uh, to just like Pam uses that, you know, she made Michael from her own body. I don't know what that experience is like. So I'm, it's some sort of intense, passionate type instinctive feeling that maybe I don't have a personal experience with overcoming that. So how can I go call a woman, for example, to overcome the natural passions or the temptations that they're experiencing? Yeah. But there is one who does know those temptations. And that's where the hope comes from is in Christ, understanding the atonement and that being an experience for him, all experience basically. And the, the confidence I can get from first Corinthians 10, 13, that all temptation is common to man and God understands it and will provide for a way for us to escape it. And so even though I may not understand the process of overcoming and maybe sanctifying a mother's love through heartbreak so that it doesn't turn into this tyrannous, controlling, um, weaponized power and becomes something beautiful, um, doesn't mean that God doesn't understand. Yeah, that reminds me of three things. One, when McPhee points to Later on, when the lizard dies and becomes a stallion, he says, imagine if that, lo- if that lust 
can turn to a stallion, what would friendship become? Or mother love, or any of these things that are some of the most beautiful things we experience as humans. Um, if a little lust can become an amazing stallion, what could it be? Yeah, the gamble is greater with with more pure, with um, almost holier affections. Yeah. But in the, in the affection, the state of affection, it's not yet, yet sanctified. I like that Lewis, if, I feel like he drew a line because he did such a great job writing about the lizard and, and the stallion. And then he puts out there, what could it be? He leaves it in the realm of, of imagination and contemplation, which is, I, I don't know, makes you appreciate it even more, I think. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's almost a humility. It's to a say, hum, yeah, it's a humility. To say, I don't know what it is, but just by the logical comparison, it's got to be greater. I love that. And then I like that he uses the analogy or the example of brass is mistaken for gold easier than clay. And that you're not going to build a religion necessarily around lust, but someone could build a religion or devote their life to this mother love, but they're ultimately trying to replace God and their priorities are out of whack. Any of our, our instincts, when we, take, when we label our instincts as virtue, well, our instincts come to us instinctively. We don't have to work for them and we don't have to sanctify them. And so if we, we try to say, that's where I'm virtuous, well, we have no responsibility for our instincts. And if we have no responsibility, we can't actually show that we chose them. Hmm. And our choices are the things that we need to yield up. And if it's something that we haven't yielded, it can't be, our natures are not holy. They must die first. They must be killed first. What did you see with the with the ghost and the lizard on his shoulder and this angel sitting there just begging him to let him kill it? I mean, you see a lot of Eustace as the dragon in this moment. Um, it's interesting. I this this ghost is even said to be more oily or like yeah, darker almost like more substantial than the rest of the ghosts in kind of this weird and dark way hmm. but at least there's a seeking of of a pleasure in the wrong way or in excess that's different than seeking your own ego you can think of the woman who's trying to posture and and uh win over the the spirits but she's just this ghost and she becomes, you know, almost in comparison, she's just transparent. And there's something that's even more in the direction, I think, of solidity, solidness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, even in a pursuit of pleasure to maybe the wrong end. Yeah. It reminded me of the Pilgrim's Regress after he's gone through the cave and everything else. And he's going back across the land and he confronts lust one last time. Because at this point... The lizard is on his shoulder and they're in heaven. And it's, you know, he's like, you know, I'll, I'll give you good dreams. Like, I know you can't actually have pleasure at this point, but, you know, I'll still do these things for you. But it's just, it, lo it had lost a lot of its power now after death, but it still was something he had to let go. I do like the language that the ghost uses when he finally yields. yields. When he calls out for God. Yeah, he's like, God save me. Or God I love help that. me. Yeah. And, and that's when the angel steps in. And then crushes Master the stroke. Well right. done. <laughs> you can almost see microcosmically every one of these experiences, but I see the whole book kind of microcosmically experienced in this interaction. Or at least in this, the hope of this book in this interaction, where you have somebody bringing their little part of hell with them or trying to. And if you can yield that, give it up, it will feel like dying. And then it gets crushed and killed. And then from that, from the ashes, um, it didn't transform. It had to die first. You won't be forgetting that part and turn into the stallion. That that experience actually is what gives the ghost power to become solid. Hmm. I also think it's significant that this is an angel that helps. Not necessarily. Um, I didn't another, catch that. Another, so it's not just a spirit. It's, it's an not just a spirit. The... It's an. It's like an emissary. It's like a, an extension, you could say, of the character of God. 
I like that the ghost uh, and the angel points out to him when he says, you know, you, this could kill me. And he's like, it won't kill you, but even if it did. Right. He had to get to that point where it was worth more than not dying. Yeah, well, also willing to die. Yeah. Even if it did, would you be willing to go through this even if it killed you? Even if you didn't know you would turn into this beautiful, solid ghost, or sorry, beautiful, solid human spirit on a stallion riding up the mountain because the end result is majesty. But before then, the ghost didn't yield up the the lizard or the, you know, knowing his conclusion. Yeah. And I think that's important. wanted it to be gone. Yeah, that's important for us to be willing to not just... Oh, you know, not sleep on the fixed land because of what it might give you, but not sleep on the fixed land because it's commandment. Yeah, because it's a commandment. Hmm. So they ride up into the hills, and the the line from earlier on when the spirit promises that the first part's hard, but you'll go on like a house on fire after, and then they go just like a comet up the mountain. I love that imagery. Tell us this the song. Yes, uh, this song just really hit me. Uh, the The words are beautiful. I, I would say go back and listen to it on 0.8x speed <laughs> if you're an audible. But uh, let me just read a few of the lines that I loved. Come up, all natures that were your enemies become your slaves, and backs for you to ride. Um, firmness for your feet to rest on. Strength that opposed your will here in mortality uh, becomes obedient fire in your blood and heavenly thunder your voice. Overcome us that so we may overcome, that we may be ourselves. That line right there, the, the reminder that the, the, only, the, the pursuit of laying down our lives so that we may find it is the only path to this thing that I think we all superficially pursue as human beings of whatever this ourselves idea is, our personalities, which we put as as the thing that has the greatest importance in our lives, and we have to lay it down. Um, And then as we do, all of the things, the things that we feel like we're fighting against in this life now become the very horse that we ride on, the backs that we ride on. They, we become their master. And, and uh, I love that he describes this song as something that mortal ears can't hear. Once again, it puts it into that, I, that imagination, into that place where it's something that I feel in my heart, but I feel like I'm always reaching for. <laughs> um, anyways, there, there's other lines, but I, yeah, beautiful song. Loved it. <laughs> Alex asked me to sing it, which I politely declined. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's an interesting juxtaposition of overcoming these passions and letting them die so that they can be your servants. And then he rides up the mountain on the back of the steed. And also our relationship with God, that the reason he wants us to die for him is so that we can be his servants but servants in a way that he can lift us up. Master, and, your master has appointed you forever. That's right. Is that not so cool? Yeah. <laughs> so he calls the master and there's this, there's almost this ranking of master and master. And that you can have mastery over these baptized passions. And that you also can be a baptized passion in a way. So it, it, it's... It, it, I, I like how the song doesn't even really rhyme. Yeah. It, it has this feeling and there's certain, there's other places where Lewis has kind of written the translation of something and it didn't sound, I'm thinking of magician's nephew when they read the inscription on the bell mm-hmm. and it doesn't have the same ring as it would, as they could read it by, but the translation doesn't really do it justice. And I like that there's even that quality to the song where it's like, and maybe this is just a, um, a trick of, uh, an astute author, but saying, you know, this song in the real language, let's say in the old solar language is rhymy and melo- melodic. Melodious. And, <laughs> melodious, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, 
and here it just kind of it looks kind of more like free verse but um yeah i i think that song right there also is microcosmic of the whole meaning of the book what did you think about the line that it's not that human nature or anything about our nature is too is too, too bad or too evil yeah rank but it's i too think weak. is what it comes rank yeah. but it's too weak yeah i mean the the imagery of a little lizard compared to the stallion is great but also the whole idea of hell being something that is nothing that's it's like defining characteristic compared to the real of heaven and that badness isn't even good at being bad in the same way that goodness is at being good and to realize that god doesn't want us to blind away or push away the bad just pay attention to the good because the badness really is nothing and we'll see that in the next experience about what it means for something to not to just kind of like cease to exist so much that we can't attend to it we got a little glimpse of that when um what is it reginald is that the name of the brother of pam's brother uh yes i think so um that michael wouldn't be able to see her in, yeah in her state we specialize in this kind of thing oh it's work is it <laughs> <laughs> that's right but realizing that that badness you the way to overcome evil in a lot of in a lot of scenarios a lot of situations even a repetitive a song that gets stuck in your head let the light in yeah let the light in overwhelm it crowd it out with real and with goodness and uh listen to a good song <laughs> you know some people say you need to listen to the end of the song or to give your brain that resolution that depends on the song <laughs> that doesn't work for me what works for me is listening to good music yeah and um I think I, I love this experience because we all have little lizards on our shoulders. I mean, this applies to all of us. This is one of those situations where it's like you could look at, uh, point your finger at these people dealing with these types of egos and experiences, why they're refusing to go into heaven. I can't help but see myself in this oily ghost. And I think that's true of all of us. And we all have to, we can't take even the smallest part of hell up with us. Let's take a break and we'll get right back. Okay, we're back and we are with the illustrious Sarah Smith of, I can't remember the, the town she's from or whatever. Yeah, where is it? it? Starts with a G. Yeah. But I can't, I don't remember. Yeah, she's no one, no one of importance, at least in the way that we think of important. Before in the book, um, we're talking to the, the painter, I think, his corresponding spirit says, there's nobody famous here. Or in other words, we're all famous, but not in the way that you think. So how does that work? If, if nobody's famous, but then Sarah Smith gets to be famous, what do, what do you think that is? Is that beyond our ability to, under, to understand even? Now you're making me sound presumptuous to try and <laughs> take a pot shot. But I, later on, Sarah Smith says to her husband, you can't take me out of love because I am in love, in the love of Christ. And I think there, there is nothing more powerful, more majestic, more priestly or priestessly than God and his love. And so this woman who's lived a life of yielding and submitting to God now has become a conduit of his power and love and royalty and everything. And so, um, you know, sh the her reputation is great because it is God's reputation that she reflects. And so to me, if you're... If you're okay that your reputation as a standalone individual, which that reminds me of McPhee's line, uh, there's nothing smaller than a damned soul because it's shut up in itself. But McDonald's. if your reputation is, uh, yeah, McDonald, uh, if your reputation is based on you yourself alone, um, then yeah, there's not going to be much of a reputation in heaven. 
or you can have the greatest reputation ever in God. I don't think I could have said it differently. Well, I could have said it differently. <laughs> I don't think I, I would have. Yeah, I didn't know. And that helped me. So like what, what I was thinking as you're talking is um, if the rep reputation is your own ego, that doesn't, that doesn't really count there. But if your reputation is the character of God, that's what fame is. Yeah. It talks about the sons and daughters that followed her and even the animals that followed her. And Lewis says, ah, she must have had a really big family. And he said, every, every boy and every girl that came to her home or that she interacted with became her son and daughter. And, and then also even just the men and women, like everyone, just anyone that interacted with her, um, it reminded me of that hideous strength and the uh, Jane and Ransom and how she starts to realize she loves the director and how it says that it's not in the way that a boy or a girl would then kind of neglect his parents to choose her as the mother, but would actually go home to be better sons and daughters or that a man would love her and so then go home to be a better husband. That's a little bit complex. I think it's the conclusion. It's the fruit. If, if you can't really understand the process, at least you know the conclusion, um, which is that she didn't own them for love of her, but she was a conduit of this love of God. And if you're filled with the love of God, you'll love your parents more. You'll love your spouse more. You'll be kinder to animals even. And so if she were really this transparent, not in the ghostly way, but it transparent to the light of Christ, then if people came to know God better through her, which I think just says, uh, which just points to what your explanation of her fame was, is that her fame was the fame of God. Yeah. Shining or radiating, reflecting from her. Okay. So I don't know if I can see that. I don't know if my mind's pure enough to even understand how that works. I do think that those conclusions are true in my experience with certain people that when I admire the right people, it makes me want to be a better person, not necessarily to try to win them or their affection. You can almost see the difference between an admiration and, and like an obsession, like it's not, don't go become a stalker for the person that you, that, that you, uh, idealize. Look to other people as almost these signposts to Christ to see their behavior and think, okay, they're not exact, they're not at the level of Christ, but they're in that direction. And maybe that's just a step closer that I can emulate. Yeah. And because of the variety of, of completely different situations that people find themselves in. I think anytime you find those people who are aligned as a signpost, it's, it's inspiring to see how they're trying to live out a Christ-like life in their unique circumstance. And then you can pull from that, like you're saying, and yeah. learn from that and then go and try and apply it to your own life. Right. And it's possible that in her life, people didn't even realize that she was doing that. They may have even forgotten her. And right. she'd be okay with it. She'd be okay with it. Yeah. Yeah like that so uh the tragedian yeah and the dwarf who turns out is her husband <laughs> <laughs> this is oh it's hard not to see me in this you know when i'm when i'm listening and reading it's just like that idea of acting and pretending not to be acting is like the final <laughs> the final um, diabolical skill of trying to pretend that you believe certain superficial ideas of virtue so that you can weaponize virtue against people. I see this in myself. I see it in our culture a lot. I feel like our culture right now, and maybe our culture, the way that I say, it, I don't really have direct access to what that our culture quote unquote, um, means, but my perception of the culture seems like a lot of superficial weaponized virtue. I'm thinking of like canceling people and maybe some people deserve to be canceled. I don't know, but canceling seems to be predominantly a pretending 
to not understand what people mean so that I can just have power over them. Yeah. And using the language of power, which is the language of our time, the man, the, the media, all of these type of powerful elements and trying to jump on that side and say, I'm with them, you know, and that person did a bad thing, right guys. And let's not try to understand what they really meant because that doesn't help my narrative or the greater narrative that I'm hoping to be uh, aligned with. So you, I just see a lot of just the, and, and this is, um, something McDonald says is we all kind of use pity like that. We all use pity as a weapon. He distinguishes that there's two, two types of pity. One, which is for the heavenly side and the other one, which is from hell. The yeah. pity of action and the pity of... Pity was meant to be a spur to drive joy to help misery. Which is good. As a spur. Right? Pain is God's megaphone. You could say the same thing there too. Pain is your spur to move you to change what your, your behavior is. But don't make pain, don't put pain on a pedestal, right? And I think when you use the experience of pity or you can weaponize pity, you take, you, you um, misrepresent pity as being something other than just a very specific tool and you try to generalize it. And you try to say, well, if I can take advantage of people who feel pity, which are generally charitable people, and if that gives you, if that, if that excites you, you're like, now I can manipulate and control everybody who has, is trying to be charitable. That's a scary skill to develop. Yeah. The, the husband, one thing he, he kind of makes a little bit of a progression where there's this moment where she can tell and, and Lewis can tell that he knows what she means and he knows that her laughter, what her laughter means. And I like, there's the, there's the throwaway line, just that no, no people find each other more absurd than lovers. Right. And I think about sometimes when Alex is laughing at something silly that I do. This is your wife, Alex. But, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Alex, the wife uh, laughs at me about something silly I do. And, but it's with, love in her eyes and and almost endearing that she knows my weaknesses and some of these uh foibles that i have and she and it, it, it can be something that's bonding and brings you together um or you could use that to take to have power over her right how dare you laugh at me yeah you're a bad person and i'm a good person because i'm a victim right now of your laughter and victims are the good people if the villains are the bad ones right it's that kind of same backward logic that victoriana uses is that all great artists are persecuted in their age and I am i'm persecuted therefore <laughs> or i'm great singer you know yeah yeah and so he he really what kind of sends or what he chooses to let him send send him the other way and play this victim card is that she says, I don't need you. Yes. There's no needing in this relationship. And I like that it talks about how with earthly love, usually even with our best attempts, l these relationships we form is usually more just about wanting to feel needed and wanted than it is really about love. And until we are full of God's love, where we have no needs, can we actually start to love perfectly? And I think we can begin down that path of trying to trying to take in God's love so that we can love more perfectly, so that we can love from a needless place. Yeah, that line, come and see, for we shall have no need for each other and begin to love each other truly. That, I don't know, it's, it's hard to get there, but I do know this, need is a power term. And from looking through the lens of power, you can see if somebody needs you, you have power over them. And it sounds a lot nicer to say, I want to be needed, which is just a, a flowery way of saying, I want to have power over other people and to want to be needed by your spouse is I want them to be sad if I'm not there. 
I want to have control over their happiness. I want their happiness to depend on me. And that has nothing to do with them. Humans aren't very good at making each other happy for very long. <laughs> but even if, it, even if that were true, it's that desire to have power over somebody, that desire to be the ego that you want them to be aligned to. And the sad, the history of the world is the sad history of people trying to find happiness in anything else other than God. And the greatest example of charity that we know of came from someone who didn't need, he loved us first. It didn't come from need. It came from a desire to love. Pretty well, cool. we, because we do need him. Because he actually does have power. We do need. Yeah, we, we absolutely <laughs> right. do. He is, the, he is the power. And the thing is, is when we try to short circuit that power or take some for ourselves without sanctifying it first, it's going to be power, but not a power for good. The last thing I wanted to hit on here before we jump to chapter 14 was Lewis is caught up a little bit about this idea that she can't go into hell after him and that at the end of the day, if he chooses it, she's going to go on in joy and her joy is not going to be held hostage to this guy choosing pity and misery and, and victimhood. And that bothers him, but I like that McDonald points out to him that would you, how would you have it? And although Lewis just has this feeling of, well, that feels a little bit unfair, um, what would you rather have it the other way? Would you rather have this woman chained to her husband because of his choices? Yeah, even her her posture, even her attitude seems almost uncaring. All of the all of the spirits have that. It, that's one thing that stood out to me is as the ghosts are going through their things, the the spirits are all laughing. Every single one at some point it's like, and the the spirit just like mirth filled their face as they but it's this feeling of just like don't you get it? Like if you'll let go, you can have all of this. It's but but it doesn't. The nothing the ghosts are doing is seems to infringe on the their joy that they found. Yeah, whenever the ghosts say something that's true that seems almost harsh, the spirits just agree. Like, are you saying I was wrong? Yes, we were all wrong. Yeah, you know, in in, <laughs> in that life, and I think that that just answering totally truthfully. I don't think I can do that. I have too much spite in me. I have too much of this desire for power over other people that if I were to answer totally directly, maybe it would it would be sprinkled with some self-congratulatory, egocentric type posturing. But you can tell from them there's none of that. It's just your ghostliness is really nothingness. Be something. And if you're going to go in the direction of nothingness, then I'm going to stop attending to you. And as this husband becomes smaller and smaller and just a bug climbing up the chain and finally like eaten by the trage tragedian, um, that she just kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. You're you. gone. Who she, are you? <laughs> she seemed almost desperate. Not really desperate because desperate connotes some sort of need, but she seemed like impassioned about trying to get him to stop acting while he was still there. But once the ember had gone out, she will not continue to blow ashes in her face. And it seems harsh, but he really just ceased to exist. He wasn't a person anymore. Just like the woman who was grumbling may have just been a grumble and not a person who grumbles anymore. You can destroy your whole identity by yielding to the nothingness of yourself. And I think that's the contradiction that you were bringing up about sacrificing or losing your life for Christ's sake is the way to actually have an identity. Chapter 14, he sees, you know, there he's talking to McDonald and then it switches and he sees these spirits sitting around a chess table and the silver table is time. This one's a little bit um, more mythological. This one's a little bit more mythological. <laughs> so why is the table made of silver? The silver chair. I don't know. <laughs> no. What does silver mean? Silver is course the corresponding moon. with the moon. And the moon is illusion. The illusion of our mortal lives. This is showing that we're in a dream. 
We're the dream. The reality beyond us is not the dream. So when we're in the dream right now, it's important to realize that we are weak. We are ghosts compared to the reality and the solidness and the the solidity of heaven. And to see it from that way around, but we're still caught up in analogy. We can't ever take ourselves out of our our time-bound minds to look at what would it be like to be timeless. And so even that is just an analogy. It's just a vision in a dream. And don't ask for visions and dreams to give you more than a vision in a dream can give you which is just that perspective. I'm going to make the plug for the Flatland book again, that you can sometimes understand like a higher dimension by knowing your relation to a lower dimension. But you'll never really be able to take your mind out of three dimensions. And if you try to claim knowledge that you can't have no, inside of time. You're no son of McDonald. You're no son of McDonald. <laughs> and you also, you you will deceive people. Yeah. And that's something I I think I've seen a lot of, of when we try to fixate, we have the picture, we have the vision, but when we try to bring it into a reality that it doesn't fit in, like your Flatland book you're talking about, yeah. we're trying to bring a, a three-dimensional object onto a two-dimensional plane, um, it will inevitably start to deceive people. And so it will I, make the fourth dimensional reality seem like abstraction. And it's not abstraction. We are abstraction compared to that. Right. And we can't do that except through this logical supposition. And that's why we get into the suppositional mindset when we're doing mythological or fictional storytelling like Lewis is doing right here. It's important for us, but only as a, as a thought experiment. We can't see what the reality is. We can only trust. This is the boundary of our faithful experience. We cannot see the step we're taking into the dark. And if that step is death, we don't know what's happening beyond death. But it's a humility and an intellectual humility of yielding to truth to say, just because I don't understand it doesn't mean that it's not real and or even more real. And nobody has a pass. We all have to come to that, that brook and cross the brook not knowing what's on the other side, and it's going to be terrifying. Have we become acquainted with terror? And have we drowned out that fear with faith and hope? I don't, I, you know, saying that it's like, oh no, <laughs> I've got so much farther to go before the morning. I'm excited. I'm, ex- I'm, <laughs> I'm excited. excited for, I'm excited for the morning to come tumbling over the mountain like blocks. <laughs> <laughs> it's too real. Yeah. It's too real. <laughs> All right. What, what is our, where are we going for our audio clip today? Okay. So this is where we kind of just brushed over a little Hotly bit. Hotly contested audio clip <laughs> section of it. Just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, I've kind of... Our audio clip comes from the end of chapter 13. And this is where, you know, we kind of teased at the beginning. This understanding of free will and maybe the timeless view that God has of our existence and why the contention of predestination and free will are both kind of deceiving. If you put the question from within time and are asking about possibilities, the answer is certain. The choice of ways is before you. Neither is closed. Any man may choose eternal death. Those who choose it will have it. But if you're trying to leap on into eternity, if you're trying to see the final state of all things as it will be, for so ye must speak, when there are no more possibilities left but only the real, then ye ask what cannot be answered to mortal ears. Time is the very lens through which ye see, small and clear as men see through the wrong end of a telescope, something that would otherwise be too big for ye to see at all. That thing is freedom, the gift whereby ye most resemble your Maker, and are yourselves parts of eternal reality. So you have these two truths, but he says that one is the superior truth, and that is freedom. In fact, it's the, the truth 
by which we most resemble our maker. If we have to put these two things at odds, that God is all-knowing, that we exist as eternal, timeless beings and are only experiencing a cross-section, but that leads our time-bound minds to think that our whole identity is in some way already, and that already term is a time-bound word, already determined. Well, one, that versus free will, free will is the deeper truth. Now, they're not in actuality contending with each other in the same way that a particle and a wave in quantum physics are not really duking it out. (laughs) Yeah, they're not mutually exclusive. They seem so in our understanding of physical reality. And yet our observations are that they both exist simultaneously or space and time. And we call it space time when we get into (laughs) modern physics because we can't really understand that they're not exclusionary or they're not in contention or they're not competing. They're the same thing, but from different perspectives. And the perspective of our experience is always time bound. But the truth is, whether we can understand it through the wrong end of the telescope that we're looking at right now, is we do have freedom. And we are responsible for the choices that we make. And those choices are how we experience eternity because that experience of now and choosing and consciousness, which only really makes sense to exist if we have that freedom to make our choices is the closest we'll ever get in mortality to experiencing what God experiences. Those are great thoughts. And for the record, I laughed when you said space time because I've heard that phrase a lot. But when you said it, I just felt like I just heard in my mind, space time. <laughs> you heard it like, <laughs> like that? Is like, that a reference like to something? <laughs> dance time. I don't know. <laughs> it's space time. <laughs> it's space time. <laughs> anyway, uh, but uh, as I was listening to the audio clip, the thought that came to mind are, we'll say the Christian Christian detractors or people who um, are looking to looking to criticize faith in general, things that they will say about heaven as it's talked about a lot of times in, in a congregation. Um, and that, well, if, if heaven is just a bunch of people sitting around on clouds and white clothes playing harps, like not interested. And to me, I know they're, I know they're, that's, I know they're being facetious and they're just trying to make it sound ridiculous. But when we try to take pictures and make those pictures reality with our perspectives, we're doing our dis- ourselves a disservice. We only have this as a reference point, And it's why we're hitting this edge of our ability to even talk about this and praying so hard for the mercurial spirit to be with us so we can hopefully talk about something that can help us access a little bit more truth and light than we can than we normally can and so i think it's just I, it's cautionary for me to to look out for the ways that i'm trying to make the reality that it's promised me too much like the reality I experience right now. Because if I do that, then maybe I'm failing to really grasp the vision. Thank you for being in our book club. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation today. And uh, we hope that you will join this conversation. So send us in your voice memos. Uh, Next week, we are going to have our wrap-up episode for The Great Divorce. And so we'd love to hear from you, your questions and thoughts. We've gotten a couple emails already, which we're excited to to share then. If you'd like to participate with comments, questions, criticisms, or corrections, you can email us a message or voice memo at bookclub at mountainair, M-T-N-A-I-R dot media. Please subscribe, rate, and review on the podcast app. Yeah, there are also links in the Spotify and Apple podcast episode descriptions if you'd like to leave 
a voice memo that way as well. See you next week. Yep. See ya. <laughs>